Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. So what is interesting is that according to a 2020 sur survey by Deloitte, is that 93% of CEOs believe that business should have a positive impact on society beyond pursuing profits and wealth. But this doesn't happen so easy. The problem is that people do not know how to, how to do that. Despite the fact that there is good numbers saying that it is possible to do it and you must do it, like let's say even Even consumers are more likely to support companies that have a positive social or environmental impact. A survey by Deloitte found that 83% of consumers believe that companies should only earn a profit if they also deliver a positive impact. Hmm, that's a, a, a good sign. For, in the other side, employees are also more engaged and productive when they work for companies that they believe in. A study by Gallup found that employees who are aligned with their company's missions are six times more likely to be engaged and 20 times more likely to be thriving in the roles. But finally, I have found someone who has done some research about the fact of doing good. Somebody that has looked on the reasons why it is so tough to make good and do good business. And how a few people that has got the courage to make it Have, do, have really done it. I would like to introduce you to Joshua Berry. Joshua is the managing director of and co-founder of Iconic, an innovation consulting company. And the reason why I got so interested and I wanted him badly in this episode is because of his new book. His new book is called Dare to be Naive, How to Find Your True Self in a Noisy World. And it has freshly been released. This book, in fact, explores the, this kind of intersection between the desire many leaders have to use business for good and what keeps them, some of those leaders, from acting on those beliefs. Joshua, I'm so happy to have you with, uh, with me to, today. And, and we were already chatting almost for 15 minutes about how many people we, we know in common, right, Joshua? <laughs> Uh, yes, Ivan. I I am always amazed at how small the world is, and the fact that you are in such good company with other such great people makes me even more excited for this conversation. <laughs> Listen, I, I found your book very inspiring. Um, the thing is that I got stuck with the, the title. So in our society, <laughs> usually the word naive is associated with negative connota connotations. Uh, I want to know, really, what is your specific definition about being naive? Yep, you nailed it. Uh, most people think that being naive is a bad thing. But through the research, and we can get into that, uh, what I realized is a lot of that fear of being seen as naive is what prevents people from actually having a greater impact in life and a lot more joy in what they're doing. And It was because of that that I intentionally then wanted to dig in and figure out, well, what does naive mean and why are we so afraid of being seen as naive? 
And you're right, it actually has a definition that has changed or shifted over time. Uh, today, most people, as you said, think naive is being unsophisticated or ignorant or unworldly. Uh, and yet the original definition of naive just means innate or natural or genuine or authentic, right? Uh, something that was nativist or ingenuo uh, was something that got back to your innate self, that thing that was there from the start. And uh, I, we can talk if you want to about when it took a, a turn to be a negative thing. But my, my definition of naivete uh, embraces more of that, right? The authenticity and then the curiosity that comes from this like going back to and not knowing sort of thing. You, you say it from the start. And then I, I'm thinking about my kids when they were young and they have this, they were playing and they were entering into their world of fantasy playing like for one hour without making noise these little noises yeah. that really bother a lot of parents I know. <laughs> um, and they are so immersed in something that they enjoy and you also mentioned joy so you are talking about being immersed joy you make me think about the flow uh yeah is there any any correlation between this naive or this innate feeling that we have lost somewhere and the flow what one hundred percent? I I I believe, and the best leaders and the people who, at least I most want to spend time around, are very generative in nature. Right? They're creating in nature. They 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 get into that flow, as you said, and to understand that that is always a part of us is something that is extremely important for a lot of leaders to come back to. You mentioned your children. I actually talk about there's kind of three stages of, of this naivete in life. There's absolutely that. Your childlike naivete, this, this curiosity, this wonder. You can just get lost in things and you don't care as much about what the world or other people think of you. And then over time, uh, people with a louder voice or more authority or at least a bigger microphone start to tell you the way things are and the way things should be. And that there is a right way to do it. And, and in some ways I characterize it and that it becomes this like hyper rational, much more dominated by masculine energy, especially in the workplace. And we, and we quiet, we, we get all this noise on top of that childlike wonder and naivete. And that's that second stage, right? Like it's hidden. It's still present because I think you and I, Yvonne, can tell like when you're in a meeting and somebody says something you don't agree with, and there's some voice inside of you that's like, that's not right. Or I should, I should argue against that. But then the rest of the voices say like, you better not say that. What we've seen is the ability, and we can talk about this in the episode, to move beyond that second stage into this third stage where you can start to embrace a chosen naivete, which is fully inclusive of those last two, right? It's, it's actually a more mature naivete where you can say, and I can make space for that which feels intuitively true. And when I get to that space, hmm, I might be able to supersede uh, some of the things that were stuck in that second phase of life. So it is almost like there is a combination, like from our early ages as, as a child, of norms, structures that 
I don't know, drowns our, our sense, our genuinity, uh, the, the fact of being genuine. I, I don't know how you call it in English, by the way, but <clears throat> the fact of being genuine, it is pre-formatted. And what you are claiming is that somehow we should break this mold that has been formatted by this our society, by school and so on. Hello again. No worries. So what what you are saying is somehow we have been formatted from our early childhood to follow norms so, uh, as given a structure. Then there is the reinforcement from parenthood. There is the reinforcement of the schooling, university formats our brain so that we live in a structure that make us lose our sense of naivete. Is that correct? I I do agree with that. Uh, being able to get to a spot of this is the right way to do things, that's the wrong way to do things. Every A, a lot of how school has been for the last hundred years, for instance, is very much in that. And, and it in some ways, it served the purpose that we designed it for. <laughs> if you think about the needs that businesses had to have people who would come in and be able to comply quite often with the jobs that were needed, right? Coming in and reinventing and being curious and coming up with new ideas and the diversity that comes in all of that uh, didn't quite fit with the principles of scientific management that we'd opted a <laughs> hundred years ago and started to create. And so uh, what I think is fascinating though, and why I think right now is the time for the work that you and I are doing to try to move away from that and I hope that this book does for people, is more and more companies are asking people to be more curious, to be more adaptable, to be more agile. And, and they're asking for all of these things that uh, is a shift away from probably a lot of, of, of how they were indoctrinated over the last few decades of school and early work. And what is funny, and, and it relates to the earlier conversation that we have got, is that you cannot change this more curiosity, uh, more innovation by providing just training because you need to work on the structure itself of how things, all the processes of validation or, or on the culture of the organization on, so that it is enabled, so that people can really be innovative in a, in a place where I don't feel ashamed of saying something that might be considered wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling judged. So this work of, uh, of wanting to have more innovation or this, this goal needs to go together with the formatting of the how which behaviors are going to be displayed and what processes are enabling these uh, these behaviors. You're one hundred percent correct. There's there's internal work that needs to happen from a person, and there is external work that needs to happen in terms of team practices and organizational systems. Right. Just two examples of that. If you have organizational systems, let's say how we do performance management or how we do compensation or other things that reinforce there's a right way to do things and you're punished uh, to propose an idea that doesn't work. Well, then why would anybody step out into a place of curiosity or what if? And, and yet 
<laughs> so many companies are putting people through trainings, trying to expect that behavior without adjusting some of the team practices or the organizational systems. And then when you look at the internal work that people have to do, there are definitely people who are able to supersede that and still act in those ways, but it comes from resilience and inner self-awareness that people have to start to do to say like, okay, am I going to be brave enough to speak up in this meeting? And so there needs to be inner work. Let's take a meeting again. There needs to be inner work of a person saying, where is this fear coming from? What story am I telling myself about it being unsafe to say something new? But there's also work that the team can do to maybe structure a meeting in a better way to create an environment where it's okay for people to throw out something that might be a, a minority opinion or a new idea or something. So there has to be a give and take on both sides to permit this passing into uh, a, a space that is more generous and generative. <laughs> it, it almost makes me want to correct the description that I gave about Iconic, your company, because I was talking about it's an innovation consulting company. In fact, when I went to your website, I found more things about human skills rather than the usual design thinking, lean startup stuff. No, no, you were talking about people. Now, <laughs> thank you for nice... touching that, Yvonne. I agree. <laughs> I'm, we're more a people company than innovation. We love to use innovation to help people practice the behaviors that grow themselves and their companies. So indeed, indeed. That that drives me to, to my next question. So naivete is almost like a spectrum. So there is a beginning, at the end, you can be little naive and very naive. So is there a thing uh, such as being too naive? Can, Absolutely. How do Absolutely. you spot the, the right level? Yep. So uh in in my work with trying to understand naivete, one of the first things that I realized was it isn't binary, right? It isn't you're either naive or you're cynical, right? It, it's, it is 100% a spectrum, as you said. And I'm not advocating for people to be ignorant and willfully just like, you know, go, go, go leave your wallet on the doorstep and like run around. Like, I'm not advocating for that. <laughs> and <laughs> I want people to realize that we have so much uh, already pragmatism and cynicism in the world enough. In fact, one of the blurbs from my book, uh, Seth Godin said, we already have enough cynicism in the world. What we need is more generous naivete. And uh, and so it, it behooves us though to understand when do we go too far to your point. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I use the test of, is it intuitively and reasonably true? Right. And so we're not asking to say throw reason out the, the window with this, but it is very much about um, is there an intuition? Is there more about letting that authentic voice and self come through in those situations? Now, I will say. For a lot of people, the, that stepping into being even more naive or more authentic and putting that out there does feel scary. And therefore, it does come with perceived risks, right? Uh, I, I talk uh, about quite often with people that I'm a very trusting and giving person, right? Um, and I know because of that, that I'll get taken advantage of one to 2% of the time. Mm. That's the rational thinking that comes into mind, right? Like, I know not everything's going to play out the same way. I know not every character is going to do it, but I know the 98 to 99% of 
the other time, like life is a lot better. And uh, when I approach situations with trust, when I approach situations that this person it has my best interest at heart, uh, oftentimes that manifests itself, right? Similarly, if you're extremely cynical, that seems to manifest itself too, right? In terms of how relationships and things go. And so uh, it, back to your question of how do you determine how far were you at in the too naive spectrum? You do still have to use logic. You do have to take a step back and understand what am I gaining and what am I losing by this stance in there. And you have to understand that it's going to shift along that spectrum because oftentimes the more you lean into that generosity and trust and authenticity, the more it actually comes back to you and you start to actually create environments where that becomes more and more prevalent. In, in your book, I, I saw that there was a, you, you are almost making it easy for someone to answer to, to, answer to the right questions. So you have put a number of questions that people should answer uh, regarding naivete. What I found quite inspiring and, and very practical is, is that in your in your book, you are setting up already making it easy for us to understand what type of questions we must answer in order to define the level that is appropriate for us. Now, Joshua, listen, I, I let's be sincere. Like after when you have been for a while in a in a, in a corporation, you you have been formatted to a certain number of behaviors. And that because these behaviors have been protecting you from this, I mean, making that the survival of you to progress in, in terms of promotions. Uh, and you have been surviving through waves of uh, of lace, lace off and, and so on. It is very difficult and challenging to understand when, what is the real me when these behaviors that you have been accumulating have been part of your new genuine you, the one that you show at work. How do you go back after, let's say, 20 years of work to find the guy that you are really if you have been behaving on the same way forever? <laughs> There's the million dollar question, Yvonne. <laughs> I uh, probably through a lot of therapy would be my first answer. But... <laughs> I, but I, it, I mean, in some ways, it does start oftentimes, unfortunately, in, in those situations I've seen with burnout or some sort of big incident or exercise or something that gets people to say, I've had enough. And, and oftentimes, you know, we're, we're working with a lot of people who are in midlife who are, have been doing that for so long and they've just gotten to a spot where they're saying, is this, is this what it is? Is this what life is? And uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of those people then quit. They go do their own thing. They move on to something else. They do some other dramatic thing because they're just looking for a shift to get back to, I believe, that innate voice that keeps calling to them, right? Mm -hmm. There's just so much tension that comes from some of that. So Unfortunately, that's often how we first see some of the first break into some of this. I do think, though, that many organizations and people who themselves who are being proactive 
need to acknowledge and understand that it isn't it isn't just important for the mental health and well-being of their employees, but it is good for business that you get ahead of this sort of stuff. I mean, the stats that you quoted at the beginning are, I mean, they astound me uh, when I hear them, but consumers and employees are demanding that more and more leaders and organizations pay attention to what I call whole person things, right? Like understanding our impact on a number of things, understanding that I am a whole person, et cetera. And so organizations and the people themselves need to get ahead of those things. If not, we're just going to continue to have these like moments where people leave or there's breaks or there's other things that happen. Totally right. And I asked the question because you know that it is related to me. So I, I it's personally interesting. Um, let, let, let's continue because also you, in your book, you bring a lot of stories <clears throat> about people who were successful at bringing this sense of purpose in the, in the companies. And not only this, they were successful at bringing the, the, the sense of purpose, but they were successful as business people. Like you, yeah. you mentioned, uh, for instance, the founder of Patagonia, Yvon Chouinard, uh, which is... <laughs> Is, who stands out like everybody knows that someone who has designed a company with purpose and you have done some research about him and about some others. What did he exactly do to create a purpose-driven company? What yeah. Was there a moment where he, was it from the beginning of the story that he had that purpose or there was a moment where he decides, hey, let's cut the crap, let's move and change the uh, the way things are done here. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of inspiration that can be drawn from Yvonne's story. And, and the one of the things that I think is most hopeful is it wasn't just one moment. There were several moments where he had to, or he and his leadership team had to come back and realign to what they believed, right? They, they, they started to let some of their practices get away from themselves. And so just a couple examples of it. Uh, there was a point even before it was named Patagonia where Schwinar equipment was the largest uh, creator of, of equipment for rock climbing in, in North America. And um, they had a very profitable, successful business, even though Yvonne was very reluctant to want to be in business, but it just, because it was out of passion, because it was a need uh, it, it grew, but they got to a spot where he and others started to notice that they were creating damage to the very mountains that they loved. And they had a very hard decision to be able to take a step back and say, do we want to keep doing this and, and, and creating this extremely profitable company? Or do we want to really reflect on what is important to us? and decide to take a different path. And so this was, at least uh, from my understanding, one of the first sort of come back to the moments and say, what are we practicing and what do we truly believe? And upon reassessment of what they believed, they decided <laughs> to do something that's very naive, which is, uh, you know what, we're going to cancel. We're gonna stop our most profitable business line and uh, instead promote this approach to clean climbing, which was not popular in North America, which was not known. And so it was a huge risk that they put it out there, but it was it was a risk and a practice that was based upon, this is what we truly believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and now let's, let's see what happens from a business outcome standpoint, which is quite the opposite of so many people who, it's what's the outcome we're trying to get to. Now, what do, what do we need to back into that? 
And so there's a couple of other great examples throughout their uh, business. Uh, sometimes where, again, they got, these are my words, carried away in terms of some of their growth and some of their success. And they got, they got ahead of their skis and they got to a spot where they had to, again, have a, a re-correction back to what they were doing. Uh, there was a time actually one of their, uh, they had to do a big layoff um, decades ago now, but uh, where they just got ahead of themselves from sales and production and, and other things. And, and again, that sparked a moment for them to say, what is it that we truly believe in and why are we doing this work? And so that's, that's the huge takeaway. And that's a lot of the book focuses on how do I create spaces through the stories in the book, through the research in the book, not to tell leaders, this is what you need to go do. Go be like Yvonne and do these things. Go be like Jean-Francois and do this stuff. Go be like Chip and do that. The book actually doesn't advocate for saying, go do these things. The book just says, here's things people have done. What does that poke in your brain and in your heart about what you believe? Here's practices. What do you believe? Where did you learn the thing you believed? And, and is it true? And what do you gain? What do you lose by holding those beliefs? And I'll tell you how I got to, this is not the book that I was planning on writing, Yvonne, because because what I set out originally to do was actually create more like the beginning of what you said at the show, like a good, here's the ROI on doing good in business type of book. And here's the case studies and all of that. But the more and more I looked out there uh, after conversation with Raj Sisodia, who's written more of those conscious capitalism, do good in business ROI books than, than I could ever hope to, I started to realize that the leaders I need to convince are likely not going to be convinced by one more Gallup study or PWC study or something proving it. That's nice, but it's going to start by creating space to help people say like, huh, what do I believe and why do I believe this thing? How has it served me? And how is it maybe no longer serving me? And it has to start with a shift in those beliefs so that they can start to entertain newer, different practices. It, it seems to me that not only as the way you have created your book, which guide people through a journey of self-awareness, discovery by themselves. Absolutely. You are not yep. telling them this is the uh, secret recipe because it does not exist. Life is that. <laughs> Nobody, yep. the success that you have got may not be, if I apply it, may not be the success that I, I will I will have. And that drives us to the, the, the reality of, of employees and CEOs in, in, in business. How important is this self-awareness and self-judgment? Like you criticize yourself. Yeah. This is the, the, the way, is this the way I should be going? Did I do well? A little bit like the story that you have given about the, the founder of Patagonia. Um, how important uh, it is self-awareness and self-judgment to reach a balanced way of in, in business. Yeah, it's it is... It is essential. And if we think about one of the most important skills that research shows that leaders will need in the future, it's the ability to learn, but then unlearn and relearn, right? Like that ability to be able to do that is so important because of the skills, because the behaviors are going to continually change and shift and what's needed faster and faster. The core of that is self-awareness and self-judgment to be able to say, 
I need to learn something different or to be able to let go and say, well, that was my identity. Ha, huh, what this could maybe be the next thing. And so I think self-awareness and being able to be objective with yourself is absolutely one of the most critical things that we need for successful leaders who who want to stay in business because, because it's a cornerstone to the adaptability that's needed. And if we go back to what you were, we were saying before about when does it often happen for people and the shifts that they make, it's oftentimes a moment of awareness, even as you described for yourself, Yvonne, that you had some sort of awareness of burnout or other things that causes the catalyst for something different mm -hmm. to happen. It's when we are unaware, unconscious, when we are asleep at the wheel, right? That we just continue to go on, or maybe the, maybe the conflict or the tension is there, but it's not strong enough. And, and it's, it has to come to a moment of even deeper self-awareness and clarity for you to say, I have agency here. Like I can wake up. I can do something different. And the things that served me in the past may not serve me as well going forward. So <laughs> it's important, Yvonne. It's extremely important. <laughs> but what is crazy, Joshua, is, is, the, is the fact that the more power we get, the more senior we become in leadership, the less, I mean, there is some research that shows that the less less self-aware we become. So it's almost like, what the hell? It becomes even tougher when we are at the top. I think so. <laughs> there should be a moment. Uh, I mean, the practice of, uh, of, I mean, providing tools to leaders to 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 have the, to have the, this practice of self awareness to take one moment break just to do checkups with them. That should be something yeah. that we should all learn from the the start of going to uh, going to work, so that it, it becomes something a routine. That then, when we get this power, we doesn't is is not going to swamp us, and and then we become completely ob oblivious. Yeah, it's it's. You, you're you're exactly right, right? Is oftentimes, and this is this is not uh, always. Oftentimes, with more seniority, with more growth, we just continue to keep reinforcing these things about a certain identity or what success is or what it might be. It, it almost and and I've I've been there leading companies, and and it almost feels like you have too much to lose to try something different, right? Like it becomes actually more fragile. It becomes uh, even, even more like something I have to protect. And so what happens then is people want to change or shift. We're seeing this a lot in the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives of organizations, right? Like there's this, all this stuff I want to protect and people are, they want to shift and they want to change things. They want to do better. And yet there's this, there's this scarcity, there's this cynicism of like, I, I can't, there's fragility to the ego, quite honestly, that is attached to some of those things. And so part of what I think has to happen in self-awareness is people have to begin to understand where else does their worth come from. And that's full circle back to the definition of being naive. If truly the definition of being naive is just being authentic. It's being genuine. It's listening to something inside of you 
that says that you matter and that you're worth it and that you have something that is ready to give and generate and bring it to the world. And that can actually, and maybe it even sometimes sounds different than what the world is saying, what success is or what growth is or what those things are. Like it's, you have to start to tap into some of that so that you can have the courage, the fortitude, the weakness, honestly, to be able to evolve into whatever that next thing is that's needed from you as a leader. I, I have the impression that the biggest barrier that most people that might be inspired but by, by by what you say, the biggest barrier is here. So we have mental barriers. You mentioned even in, in diversity and inclusion, we have we have biases, we have a set of belief that have been formatted. And suddenly you're asking me to open up and be myself. The Maybe myself, I'm a little bit more caring. Maybe I cry when I see a sad movie in the television. Yeah. Maybe I, I, I'm too sticky with my daughter. So wh whatever. So do I have to show that to the rest of the people? So that's the, the mental barrier. So if I have all this uh, thinking, of, um, this mindset, how can I just do the first step to start? To, yeah. to change this this set of beliefs that are preventing me to 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 be a little bit more naive and and finally find joy with something that is I, I guess very human that by giving yourself to others you are fulfilling a, a, a one of the most essential human needs that that are mm. important to feel ourselves in line with our environment. Yeah, yeah, I. I... So step one in this mini step process goes back to self-awareness. And, and I will, I'll pull in those four questions specifically from the book here, which to give all credit, uh, the original inspiration and, and modifications that I made on these questions came from the work of Byron Katie. And she did a lot of work in the space of, of helping understanding limiting beliefs, even more from a personal standpoint. I just took some modifications to these and have applied them more in a leadership and a business setting. And what it is, is uh, the idea that whatever belief you have is, I'm going to say, okay. And I hope people who are watching this see the air quotes that I'm putting on. Okay. Because any belief is just our best guess at reality, right? It's, it's our pattern that we've had to create out of our assumptions and our, and the select data that we choose to pull from the world, right? We come up with a pattern. We have this belief. It helps make life easier that we just continue to see and understand that belief. But, but locking in a belief that's just a perception and a model and not questioning it or not becoming more self-aware of it keeps us in a continuous cycle where we just keep seeking more behavior, right? That confirms our biases and confirms all of those sorts of things. And so the very first step is just to step back and work through these questions. So let's use, let's use a concrete example. Let's say, um, let's use a hard one just because this is fun today. Um, let's say my manager in a meeting has uh, shot down one of my ideas in front of everybody. And now I have this belief that I shouldn't speak up in a meeting. Um, the four questions would say, first off, where did you learn that belief? I shouldn't speak up in a meeting. Okay, well, asking the person to step back and reflect on that and say, well, for sure, last week I, I saw that. And, uh, and in my previous job, I remember seeing that. and. 
I'm really deep. Maybe there was a time in childhood, you know, when, when I was in school and I wanted to speak up and a teacher came down on me. Okay. The second question is, is that true? You shouldn't speak up in a meeting. Hmm. Well, it's, it's kind of a reflective and rhetorical question because you can say like, maybe, yes, no. When is it true? When is it not true? And so there's some reflection on it. The next two questions are extremely powerful though. What do you gain by holding that belief? I shouldn't speak up in a meeting. Well, in this situation, like you probably gain safety. You gain comfort. You've probably been rewarded for that so many other times in life. And then what do you lose by holding that belief? Well, I lose maybe not speaking up and saying something that's that. I lose maybe a great idea that's out there. I'm hearing from our training people. They want us to share new ideas. So I'm losing not participating in that. What you do beyond that is step two. Step one is just creating space for yourself to be more conscious of how a belief gives you things and also takes away things, gains and losses, and some of the maybe where some of your, your beliefs have come from. And so um, that's what I would encourage people to do. And when I've been doing uh, the talks uh, around the concepts in this book, that seems to be one of the biggest ahas for people is just to say, oh, I have these patterns that I've never actually woken up to. And Joshua, you're not saying they're wrong or they're bad. You're saying, huh, any beliefs are things that you'll gain or you'll lose from. I shared before, like, I'm really trusting. I know there's things I lose from that. But waking up and being more aware of those things is step one into starting to understand if you want to shift any of the practices that are built upon those beliefs. And I guess that's exactly what we find in your book um, is through the storytelling that you bring stories that has happened for people who have been successful for with um, your own experiences you are bringing to life like um, a kind of set of a guidebook of of, mm. of, of on how to proceed in uh to de to define to define the person that you want to be uh, uh, at work, the, to define the person who is going to be happy to be at work because you are being instead of putting a mask this time you are being yourself, home and uh, uh, and at work you are living in line with your values and we said it a little bit outside of the uh, of this episode that we where we have been discussing about burnout, uh, living in line a life that you want in in line with the, your personal values is essential in order to avoid this sickness that uh which is the burnout which is spreading heavily especially in the younger generation uh and and, and i like the fact that this book is not for leaders only it can be at any uh, uh at any level is practical uh is not you didn't come with crazy psychology names uh, that uh, we or <laughs> frameworks that we have to learn. You didn't use the McKinsey guidebook on how to write a book. Uh, I, I, I loved it and I find it quite practical. Um, I know that so the 28th of November it has been uh, it has been live in uh, in the digital format and in printed format. Uh, do, do we have to expect the, the audiobook by the way, Joshua? 
Uh, yes, the the audiobook has already been recorded. I, I did record it myself, nice. which I'm super excited uh, to release into the world. It's been given to you know Spotify and Audible and and those, and so it should be released very close. Uh, it it maybe even by the time that this is released, it it I don't think it'll be there on the twenty. Uh, I don't think it was released on the 28th, but I think it will be out very soon. <laughs> oh, this is lovely. Joshua, how else can people can, can reach you out? If they have questions, especially I think that people are going to be interested about this journey that you have got from the use of helping corporations to innovate, to do bettering with ideas, to work in the essential part of, of the ideas, which is a human being having the possibility, the capacity to produce them. How can they reach you out, in fact, Joshua? Thank you, Yvonne. Uh, yes, they can They can either find more information about the book at daretobenaive.com, or they can learn more about the work that we do to help organizations shift how and why they do business through practical work at econic.co, that's E-C-O-N-I-C dot co. Thank you very much, Joshua. It was really lovely to speak to you. We spoke in Spanish before, which was like excellent because it makes like <laughs> maybe a couple of weeks that I haven't, I haven't spoken in Spanish. Well, it, I, I loved it too. And, and just one final thing, because I found it fascinating in the research uh, that the the word for naive in Spanish does not come from the same root as as naive in English does. Uh, it it comes from uh, the the word ingenuo comes from uh, this word ingenui. And specifically, uh, what in the research what I found fascinating was the people who were called ingenui uh, back in Roman times were those people who were not slaves. They were born free people, and so. In any language that you want to look at this at, being naive is about uh, getting out of the slavery that we have of those things that have been put on us and coming back to a freedom that we all are capable of possessing. Joshua, that was a lovely, lovely ending. Thank you very much. I think that we are all looking for this freedom and the actual practice through the book. Thank you Thanks very you much, are. Joshua, for your time. Cheers.